Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. In our mid-month show, we talk to Hadil, the man behind the movie distribution website Pulp Serial. There's also a little bit of movie news. I sort of have a scoop and Graham talks about something filmed locally. I'm always worried when movie news is mentioned. Also in the show, Elijah returns with another classic movie, this month, Dr. No. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror films. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Now, you've probably already guessed the show is slightly different than normal. As we talk, Graham and I are packing for our respective family holidays. Why now? Well, we get a lot of correspondence about our jokes. Your attempted jokes? Nope, just the funny ones about the <laughs> politics. People say, do you guys mean what you say? Indeed we do. So much so that with an election coming up in the UK, we are all avoiding a large part of it by going to other countries on holiday. That part is right. I have scheduled in a number of pre-recorded shows between now and the election, so you, our listener, can get what you want. And we don't have to listen to the floppy-haired one talk endlessly about nothing. And we show no bias here. We think that about all political parties. Uh, actually, that might be a lie. <laughs> right. So instead of our normal end-of-month review show, we will have something a little different for you. And while you're listening to that, as I say, we'll be in different countries. I'll be in South Africa, where I'll be talking to some filmmakers in Cape Town for some upcoming shows. I will be in America for Thanksgiving, where I believe Neil already is. Yeah, he took the first opportunity he could to avoid this political madness. Isn't he at some place in Florida called, is it Mar-a-Lego or something? <laughs> or something, Jeff, yes. I believe he is hoping to get a round in with Orange Man while he is out on the golf course. Yeah, let's see who wins that one, eh? Can't wait for that postcard. <laughs> OK, on with the show. Recently, we interviewed a very nice chap called Hadil, who has a fantastic aim with his company, Pulp Serial. It is a company that focuses on the distribution of films and TV shows with their roots in pulp fiction. It was a fascinating discussion about a very worthy aim. Let's go over to Jeff and Hadil. Hello and welcome from your At The Flicks team, who this month are interviewing Hadil Pinto all the way from America. Hello, Hadil, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, no. Thank you. Now, you are a very busy fellow, and you set up a company called Pulp Serial, which, and I'm going to quote from your website here, Pulp Serial is a company dedicated to distributing feature films, TV shows, and movie serials that all have roots in Pulp Fiction works from the last hundred years. Now, in a time when movies from 1999 are considered ancient, so God alone knows what the three of us would be like, this <laughs> is a laudable aim. And, sir, we salute you for keeping this history alive. Thank you. Oh, yeah, no problem, of course. I mean, obviously, I do it all for the love of this kind of stuff, just because I, you know, I obviously got really obsessed with it and started learning about it. And I just felt the need to try to share it with other people. And I think that's great. We did a piece on the great actors and actresses of today. And I was talking about some of the, the great actors of the 1930s. And people were saying, who? Like, 
that's now long gone. And we really need to keep this stuff alive. So what inspired you to create Pulp Serial? Back in 2017, there were two movies that were released that really confused mainstream audiences, I would like to say. One of them was Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, and the other one was The Last Jedi, of course. And both of them had definitely had roots in Pulp Fiction works and movie serials and had a lot of winks and nods and homages, and people didn't really have an understanding of either movie, I think. That's interesting because we're we're split on this. We loved Last Jedi, but Valerian for me the casting was wrong. They they were they weren't charismatic, and I, I couldn't engage with it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, you would do that, Neil, to be different to me. Well, I loved the comic, so um, and I'd, I'd read the comic for many many years, so I, I had that background, and I. I didn't like the film a lot. I liked the, the special effects. I thought they were very close to the original, but I thought it didn't really capture the feeling and the fun of the comics as much as I can. I, and I put that down to the two leading actors. I didn't think they were big enough for the roles. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I have a collection of the comics. I just never got around to reading them, sadly. I'd, I'm a little embarrassed to say that. At the local comic book shop, they had like hardcovers with some collections of the Valerian comics. And um, I mean, I really enjoy the movie a lot. I understand, yeah, they could have cast it a little better. I think uh, Cara Delevingne is a little better than her co-star because I feel like she understands what type of movie she's in. And you could tell that when she's reading certain lines that she kind of understands that this is supposed to be funny or supposed to be silly. And he doesn't always seem to understand that. So I think I like her a little better than I like the actor that played Valerian. She was good. She probably wasn't a little uh, sassy enough for the character because the character is very quick witted and fun, but she also has this edge to her and I don't think that came across it started off well when she came to take him off the virtual reality beach I thought that little scene was excellent but then she started to lose it a bit I remember when that movie came out some people were talking about who would have been cast better and someone threw out the name Emma Stone and I think Emma Stone would be fantastic if they ever decided to reboot the Valerian movie yeah I I would agree with you with that just want to touch on Last Jedi before we move on, because I'm, I'm fascinated by these two films. Last Jedi got a lot of unfair criticism when it came out for a whole host of reasons, some of them absolutely disgusting. But where's the pulp aspect of Last Jedi, in your opinion? I could just be seeing what I want to see, obviously. I mean, that could be the case. But the one sequence that nobody else likes that I absolutely fell in love with is the casino sequence. And I mean, that whole little subplot really feels almost like you're listening to one of the radio dramas like The Shadow. Like they have to go to a casino. They have to find the master code breaker. They end up meeting up with the cheeky hobo kind of pulp trope in uh, Benicio Del Toro. Like it all just feels like a a wonderful homage to that type of storytelling. I hadn't thought of that. No, I definitely hadn't thought of that. And I love that stuff. That's really good. That's really good. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go back and watch that again now, just for that. (laughs) Thank you very much, Adele. And and again, I'm not sure if that was his actual vision for it, but when I was sitting in the theater watching it, that's all I could think about is, while this feels like a, a, a story of, the shadow and Margot Lane going to try to find this guy. And I don't, that's just how I saw it. 
We'll come back to radio serials later because I'm a huge fan of radio. We'll talk about The Shadow. I'm fascinated also by the movie serials you have distributed. This is something that even for our generation, and we're all you know, around the average age of 60, Neil says he's a lot younger, but he's not. Don't believe a word he says. <laughs> so for us, you know, our parents grew up in the 30s and 40s and had movie serials, a staple that came across from America. And the only one I can ever remember is on UK TV, every Christmas from 1974 to 78, long time before you were born, Hadil, they would show a chapter a day of Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe. So we didn't get a real experience. So what you're doing for us is very different. What serial sort of first sparked your imagination and what are your favorites? Back in 2012, I was I had graduated high school the year before. I was doing some like part-time classes. So like it, there was a day where I was at home and I was filling out applications and I was just looking around to see what was on TV to throw in the background. And what what first sparked my interest in this kind of stuff was actually the 1980 Flash Gordon movie. Oh, yeah. And then ended up falling in love with the Flash Gordon character. And at that time, back when Netflix was cool, Netflix actually had the original Flash Gordon serials. And so the first one I had ever watched was Thanksgiving 2012. I sat and I watched through the original Flash Gordon serial from 1936. Mm. Is that Buster Crab as Flash Gordon then? Yes. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen it. I've only seen Flash Gordon's Countless Universe. The BBC must have only had the rights of that one. Yes. Oh, we'll I stick know. it on. The kids will just watch anything. Well, yeah. I, I must admit, I have a, a great memory of my parents sitting down in 1974 to watch that because they watched them as kids. And it was quite a nostalgia trip for my parents. And, you know, at the time back in 72, 73, you know, I'd have been a young teenager. So it would be totally uncool to watch anything your parents (laughs) were into. But yes, I do remember them sitting down and watching every single one they did on the BBC. And they were having a whale of a time. So those are your first. What, What do you say, flash forward to today... What are your favorites now with everything you've watched? Definitely my my favorite one, of course, is Flash Gordon 1936. The first one is obviously going to have a special place in my heart. I also really love Adventures of Captain Marvel. I own that one on Blu-ray. That one, it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, in the trailer, they actually put that this was the greatest serial ever made. And they actually weren't lying. <laughs> you know, marketing <laughs> always embellishes, you know, but when it comes to Adventures of Captain Marvel, that one is just kind of perfect. So was Captain Marvel a man in that? Yes, that's when Captain Marvel and Shazam were still the same person. Right, you've got to run that past me now, because I haven't <laughs> got the knowledge that you guys have got on this sort of stuff. Captain Marvel okay. and Shazam, who we've seen as yep. two separate, one a woman, one a man this year, they were the same in, in the original movie serial. Uh, yeah, so basically the broad strokes of it is so there was like a smaller comic book company that created Captain Marvel. And then like a number of years later, like in the 40s, I think DC purchased that company, if I remember correctly, and the character. But then the comic book company Marvel got upset that DC owned a character now called Captain Marvel. And so uh, there was like this whole lawsuit and whatnot. And then they ended up having to change his name to Shazam and then Marvel got the rights to the name Captain Marvel. And it just 
you know, it's a complicated situation. Again, what I'm interested in these serials is over the last 30 years, there's been a couple of attempts to turn these serials into modern day films. They've seemed to stumble, although I've loved both The Shadow and Dick Tracy. What do you think are the elements that were missing from these films that they didn't connect with audiences of their time? I just think that even then, and a lot of now definitely, people just don't really know about the history of these characters because they, of course, came before superhero comics did. And I mean, a lot of these pulp heroes and masked heroes inspired superheroes but i mean obviously superheroes took from them and then they became popular and these pulp heroes fell to the wayside so then when they were dug up in the 80s and 90s and 2000s to make movie adaptions a lot of people didn't have any sort of connection with them because they only knew the superheroes that had taken from them and so Obviously, these characters are a little cheesier, a little hokier than the superheroes we know now, but people don't realize that they're supposed to be cheesy, that certain movies are cheesy on purpose, and that's okay, and that doesn't necessarily make them a bad movie. Yeah, I mean, if you take The Shadow, and I love The Shadow, I think it's just so funny that there are some brilliant dialogue exchanges on there about the cut of their suits and things like that. Alec Baldwin is great. But you're right, that can come across as cheesy, but I thought it was just fantastic fun. I, I really like that movie. That was actually the first adaption I had seen. After that, I, I watched the serial, I listened to the radio drama, I've read a handful of the, the comics, and then I, I went back to that movie again earlier this year. And for the most part, it is a very faithful adaption. I mean, there are little things here and there that kind of bother me, like them giving Margot Lane psychic abilities, because you could tell they weren't sure what to necessarily do with her, so they had to kind of give her a thing. As a complete aside, I was in Universal Studios over in Florida in 94. First time I was in America, actually. And I was in the, the theme park, and this guy dressed as a shadow walks past, and I was like stopped, and I was impressed. My wife and kids like, so what? I thought, oh, right, okay, I'm going to lose a year then, aren't I? <laughs> Let's forget this and move on. So they didn't know who he was at all? They didn't have a clue, no. No, oh, God. No. <laughs> we, we've spoken about your company, and I think it's only fair at this point, because I, I would believe it would pique a lot of our listeners' interest now to track some of this down. Where would you direct them to to watch this? Um, well, at the time of this recording... I'm in between websites. I just had closed the original one down and I'm working on a new one with a little less overhead and better layout options. But by the time this podcast is released, that will be up and running. The website is pulpserialfilms.com. And then I also have a couple apps on Amazon Fire TV. So if you have an Amazon Fire TV or TV stick, uh, you can look up Pulp Serial, which I have a, a handful of serials on there. And then uh, Pulp Cinema, which I have small collection of feature films on there as well. And then you can also look up my YouTube channel where I have the first part to almost every serial that I have in my library. And then I also have a live show that I do every weekend called the Popolorama. We go through an entire serial week by week. And then I also have like a cartoon and, and trailers mixed in with that. Can I just take you back for a second? Because you, you said something that's really interesting. You said you got some of the original Pulp Fiction comics. Which ones, which comics did you get? 
I, I don't have any oh, right. for distribution, if that's what you mean. I've, I've just read through some that I found on like Kindle, like for cheap that, you know, if I'm looking to, ah. to read more about characters like The Shadow. Oh, I didn't even know they were available online. Okay, thank you. I'll go and dig those up because I'd like I'm to just read. looking at this website now, the uh, Pulp Serial Films. That's tons of stuff. Thing else, Adil, you'll be getting a few new followers out of this. <laughs> I mean, this is a lot of work and I see... You set up a Patreon page for this commendable uh, work that you're doing. Where can you find that, and what benefits are you going to offer to people that follow you? So Patreon.com/slash/PulpSerial to make it easy. Um, I have a few different tiers. So for just a dollar each week, you're going to get recommendations from me because I watch a lot of weird and a little more offbeat stuff, like older films. I have short film recommendations on there for two dollars a month. I have it so that you can get my podcast in Pulparama a day early than everyone else for $5 a month. I'm I'm not going to distribute the TV shows on the website anymore. So once a week, you're going to get an episode of a classic TV show that I'm going to pick at random for you, just the Patreon to watch every week. $10 is going to be audio commentaries that my sister and I are going to start doing and then $15 a month, I'm going to start doing playthroughs of video games again, which I used to do back in high school about a decade ago. And they're all going to be like a pulp-themed video games I'm going to be playing. I will hand that over to Graham, who's our game <laughs> gaming man. So which games are pulp fiction-y? The Uncharted series, most definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Definitely yeah. Adventure Pulp. Yes, definitely. Uh, Tomb Raider series, L.A. Noir going to play through the lego star wars games lego indiana jones there was a game back on the playstation 3 called dark void which had like a jetpack and took place in the 1940s oh wow okay and um wasn't there a game of the rocketeer yes back on the nes i'm going to try to track down that as well and try to track down a like a top loader nes in order to try to play that and record that for y'all Oh, wow. Good luck with that. They're, they're, they probably cost a fortune now. <laughs> okay. I've forgotten all about The Rocketeer. I Rocket, love that film Rocketeer well. is a great film. And it, didn't it have oh, I'm trying Timothy to think Dalton? Of, and the girl was. She Jennifer went, Connolly. Jennifer oh, Connolly. Oh, yes. She went on to be very famous, I was going to say. Yes, Jennifer Connolly. Yes, looking incredible in that one. Yes, she yeah. did really look that 1940. She had that look nailed in that film. Yeah. No, it's a great film. Picks up all sorts of things. I must go back and watch that again. <laughs> See what you've done, Adil. And now I'm writing out a list as we go of all these things I'm going to have to rewatch. Uh, thank you for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fascinated on that section you talk about audio commentaries. Have you any in the planning stages at the moment? And you know, if you have a list of these are the films I'd like to do audio commentaries for, which ones would they be? Oh, definitely. I've already talked about it with uh, my sister. We don't have an official list. We haven't written anything down yet. It's basically going to be a lot of the movies uh, her and I grew up watching together. Going to do like West Side Story, the films of Vincent Price, like House on Haunted Hill, and like Splendor in the Grass, and just things like that that we grew up watching together and loving. Yeah, I mean, Vincent Price. We spoke sort of offline about Vincent Price. I'm a huge fan. House on Haunted Hill, I love. I think it's a great film. The remake's not too bad, but the original's brilliant. How will you approach those commentaries? Will you do it as sort of like, will you throw out facts or will it be your personal memories of the film or a mixture of both? plan to have at least a short list of fun little facts about the movie, but for the most part, what I envision for these 
is her and I are kind of welcoming you into our home, into our living room, and kind of almost like viewing the movie with us. Because when we watch movies, especially when we we, we end up, you know, chatting a lot about it. And I, I, I mean, we have a lot of fun when we're watching them. So we're kind of inviting you into our home and allowing you to have fun with us as we just kind of talk as we would while watching them, if that makes any sense. It does. It makes perfect sense. I think that's a, a really good way of doing it. I mean, audio commentaries. I remember Spike Lee saying one of the wisest things I've ever heard about sort of audio commentary saying, you know, every student of film needs to listen to audio commentaries because that's how you learn how to make films. And and I think that's a really wise piece of advice. And you can get great ones. Anything Guillermo del Toro does is just amazing. I watched Pacific Rim. And I thought the film was okay. I didn't think it was that great, but it was okay. And then I listened to his commentary track and it just opened up a whole new world for me. Great audio commentaries really enhance the film watching experience. So good luck with that. Oh, thank you. We've spoken a lot about movie serials and I think that's a wonderful art form to keep going. What films and TV series have you been involved in distributing? Nothing too rare ones that are are actually pretty common online. But I mean, the whole point of the business is to to gather them all together in order to show people that all this stuff is kind of connected. So I just have like the Dick Tracy movies from the 1940s. I have a Captain Kidd film from the 1940s. A couple of the Shadow films, which are, are... fairly loosely adapted to the shadows so they're not the best adaptations but they're they're entertaining movies things things of that nature so i know orson wells played the shadow on radio who played the shadow in those early films uh from pronouncing his name correctly rod laroche played him in the shadow strikes and the shadow international crime wow wow have to track those down so uh, tough question i suppose what films or TV shows would you like to bring back to public attention? Things that may well have been forgotten. What would be on your wish list? Oh, yeah. I definitely have a couple white whales, which are a couple serials that are very, at least for me, in my experience, have been very hard to find. The Tiger Woman starring uh, Linda Sterling is great. I've only been able to see the first chapter, and that one is just so incredibly hard to find. I think that's still under copyright. That's another reason I haven't been able to get my hands on it, as well as the uh, the Buck Rogers serial. That's another white whale of mine. I haven't even been able to find any sort of copy to watch of that. Even on the, the Turner Classic Movies website, both of those are listed, but when you click on them, they're both out of print, so I, I wouldn't even know where to really begin with both of those serials. Tuna Classic Movies do play that game a little bit where they put things up there and it's difficult to track down. I've heard of Buck Rogers. I've not heard of Tiger Woman. That, that just went straight down on my list then. Tiger Woman. Yeah, Tiger that, Woman. that sounds fantastic. Okay, that's something else we've got to research. Yep, we'll have a look at that. That's fantastic. You can find the, the first chapter of that on YouTube. And then I think somebody posted a really rough print of the film version of the serial but I haven't been able to find the serial as a whole online before. So just going off on a little bit of a tangent, when preparing for this interview, I read your article on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it really stayed with me. I thought what you wrote there was very powerful. It just gave me a whole different view of the film, and I'll come on to that in a moment. But one of the things 
with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's a lot of pulp and pulp references throughout the film. What of those worked for you, bearing in mind, you know, the history that you're building here? What what worked for you in that film? I loved the all the references to the Italian westerns and westerns in general in that film. Um, if, if you follow me online, you know I wasn't a huge fan of the movie, but I do love how it is a love letter to westerns every time there was a bounty law in the movie i was head over heels in love with it yeah i mean for for me that it was the james stacy to see james stacy on there because you know i mean at that age i was nine ten james stacy went into alias smith and jones to see him riding off on the motorbike and knowing what happened to him in real life was quite powerful the whole thing about the poster for McKenna's Gold, a film I love a great deal. All of this sort of stuff I thought was amazing. But you're right. I mean, I don't really remember Lancer, but they reference things like the Virginian and things like that. We had a lot of over yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. And, high Chaparral. And the High, high Chaparral, yeah. The UK probably got only the best of American television, so we were a bit spoiled. Yeah. So there's lots of gaps in our knowledge, but what we did see was really, really first class. We're a very diverse country. I mean, we're made up of four countries, essentially. And I would say both Ireland and Wales had a real affinity with Westerns. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But it is bizarre, the whole thing. Adil, have you ever seen a film called Twin Town? I have not. So it's sort of like train spotting, but in Wales. The one thing with that film is the amount of references to Western and Western culture. So the name Ponderosa... But the amount of people I grew up with around my part of Wales that named their houses or, you know, little areas they lived in, the Ponderosa. Yeah. I mean, for Christ's sake, get a life. <laughs> and I grew up in Northern Ireland, just outside of Belfast, and exactly the same. And in Northern Ireland, they have, we only had a few radio stations, but one of them was dedicated 24-7 to country and Western music. I, I'm fascinated to hear your explanation of the anti-Mexican rhetoric in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, that really shook me up. That shook me. Yeah, when I read it, I thought, what? Well, I mean, it wasn't just Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, there were a couple little things that would obviously bother me more so than other people who had watched it and didn't even think about it. It's his filmography in general. He's always let, like, you know, obviously white protagonists be the hero he's let african-american people be the hero even in like kill bill he lets lucy lou be cool and he lets her shine in it but when you really think about his entire filmography he's never let latinx people be the hero or have a big role in it necessarily and at first like you could watch something like pulp fiction and you know when when tim roth calls them the, the wetbacks working in the kitchen like you can say okay that's just that character's view of latino people but the more you watch of tarantino i'm starting to have the feeling that that's not just what he's writing for those specific characters it's starting to feel a little personal and that made me even more uneasy in the movie theater when he had little things like don't cry in front of the mexicans and then my entire crowd of people because i was in a packed theater and i was the only uh, Latino person in there and everyone else just burst out in laughter at that and I was just kind of sitting there in the second to last row just awkwardly same thing 
when Leonardo DiCaprio kind of ad-libs uh, a line in the TV show that he's in about, I can't even remember what the line is, something about the beaners. And again, the entire crowd, just uproarious laughter. And I'm just kind of sitting there awkwardly by myself. I think what's fascinating with this is this is whole thing with Tarantino, you know, African-American characters, the overuse of the N-word that creeps in quite a bit. It always focuses on that. So your attention to me is drawn to that. And what Hadil is saying, and, and it's quite right, and I did not pick up on I this. I didn't pick it up, no. And, and you're quite right. There's this sort of demeaning quality that runs through that film. As I said, I read your piece four or five days ago, and it's really stayed with me. It really shook me up, I've got to be honest. And do you think that's because he's from Los Angeles and he's just got this bigotry? I'm not sure where it necessarily comes from. Like I said, I mean, he does write in racial slurs about African Americans and other races of people. But like I said, he rewards those races by letting them be the protagonist, the hero, the cool one in the movie. And I just find it kind of weird that he's never given that to us as a way to balance it out. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. One of the American stars who I really like, um, I think we all do as well, is um, Michael Pina. Yeah. Oh, yes. I think he's, you know, whatever he's in, he's brilliant. And yet he's never the star. I can't think of a film where he's been a star. I mean, his character stuff is very good, isn't it? Yeah. And But that's probably... His to his detriment, really, isn't it? He does add to films. Yeah. I would urge anybody listening to this to go to the Pulp Serial website and read that piece that Hadil has written on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think it's brilliant. Let's move on from Mr. Tarantino then. I'd like to talk about another article you've written and one that ties in with a film that means a lot to me, and that was the first horror film I ever saw, which was City of the Dead. Now, what is it about this film that you like? The first time I watched it was back in, if I remember correctly, I think it was 2011, I think the fall of that year. I think I went to like Kmart and I got like a one of those bargain bin box sets for like $5 that had like 20 horror movies on it. And one of them was this movie called Horror Hotel. And so I sat down and watched it one day and I, I just I just fell in love with it. I mean, even today I rewatched it because they have it on a two B TV right now in a very in a very beautiful restoration. I think it's the same one as the Blu-ray that recently came out, where it, it is being called in America by its original name, The City of the Dead. And it, it's just a wonderfully entertaining slow burn horror movie that's so incredibly moody. And I feel like if this was released today, I think the like the A twenty four crowd, the people who praise like the horror movies, like you know the Witch and the Babadook and things of that nature, I think they would eat this up definitely. I've got a whole host of questions coming out of this. <laughs> the first thing is, what else was on that group of films? Because I've never seen City of the Dead released over here. It was just other movies that are usually get put on these box sets that are in the public domain. Like I own several copies of Night of the Living Dead just because I have a few of these box sets. There was a bucket of blood with Roger Corman though. I think oh, I watched yeah. that the same day too. I love that film. The Terror, I think, uh, another Roger Corman movie with Jack Nicholson. And uh, just Karloff like a, was in that as well, wasn't he? Yeah, I think he he has like a, a small part in that mm. one. That was just him 
reusing the set of one of the Edgar Allan Poe movies that he had done just because he he felt, you know, he spent so much money with these sets. We're just going to film something else in the off time. Yes. Yeah. Great film. Have you ever seen Targets? I have not. Uh, it's worth writing down. So they use a lot of the terror. Boris Karloff is one of his last films and he's opening a film in a drive-in and it's the terror in the background of this is a, a shooter just going out randomly killing people. It's just a great film. You know, it, it clashes the horror film with real horror. And it, Peter Bogdanovich's first film as director, well well worth a look at. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll check that out, definitely. That makes me feel good. After all the recommendations you've given us in this interview, <laughs> I managed to get back. one back in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm fascinated by that. And Blu-ray releases of City of the Dead as well. Uh, as I said, I don't think it's been released over here. And I, I saw it as a, it was the very first horror film that I saw. My parents allowed me to stay up late. And I'm really worried, Anil, uh, to go back and watch this because there's a thing about going back on things from your childhood that they never seem as good when you go back when you're an adult. What can you say to persuade me to go back and watch it? Uh, I think it's quite good because, like I said, it's a movie that takes its time it builds a lot of suspense. It, it's a slow burn movie that, again, feels like this is the type of movie, like I said, that these A24 horror movies feel like they're throwing back to when they come out today, where people, you know, always complain that they're they're too slow and not enough happens. But uh, it's just so utterly entertaining. Of course, Christopher Lee's in it, yeah. and he is fantastic, like he is in every movie he's ever been in. And it, it's just a good time. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm interested in your comments on A24. What are your thoughts on those films? I love A24. I think the thing that bugs me most about A24 is the fan base. Because, like I said, they're one of my favorite studios, but there's a lot of people that don't seem to understand that they don't actually produce the movies. They're a distribution company, so they purchase independent films and then release them. But people seem to think that they make the movies as well people also act as if they've never released a bad film when in fact they have to be honest they have partnered with direct tv over here in the u.s recently and they've released some subpar films and maybe they've flown under the radar and people haven't noticed them but there's just some stuff that's not the best stuff they've ever released and that's okay because i mean no company is going to have a hundred percent track record with films they release what do you think of their standout films I know a lot of people would say Moonlight. I really like Moonlight. I respect Moonlight. I voted for it in the Spirit Awards a couple years ago, but it's not my favorite movie of theirs, and I know that might upset some people because the crowd that loves that movie are diehard. I, I respect it. If you love it, you love it. That's fine. One of the smaller ones I love that they released is Free Fire, which, of course, has Brie oh, Larson. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, love that film. Fabulous. That movie is so utterly underrated. Like I watched yep. that movie at least a year there's also the monster which is one of my favorite horror films of all time with zoe i can't remember never pronounce her name correctly i don't know if it's kazan or kazan but um it, it's a movie that came out in 2016 i think they only put it in like less than 20 theaters if i remember correctly it's funny every time i mention it to people even people who watch a lot of a24 releases they don't know what i'm talking about and i'm going to add to that now i don't know that one it's a really great horror movie i, I and i apologize for butchering her name because she's a phenomenal actress but um zoe kazan stars in it as a as a mom who 
obviously she like she drinks a lot and she smokes a lot and she she has a daughter who's about 10 or 12 years old and she can't really take care of her too well because she's just not a competent mother so they go on a road trip for her to take her to her dad's house for her to stay with her dad for a while and on the way there of course their car ends up breaking down and they end up encountering this really gorgeously done monster in practical effects that reminds me a lot of the like hr geiger stuff from alien okay and and it ends up they end up having to not to spoil too much about the movie but they end up having to kind of reverse roles a little bit because the daughter for the first half of the movie kind of has to take care of the mom uh because like i said she's just so such an incompetent mom even when they break down the daughter is the one that has to call the tow truck because the mom is just freaking out so much at the situation that she can't even handle that like an adult properly. Okay, that's added to my list as well. Thank you very much. I lost this one. I only managed to get one title in, whereas Hadiel's given me loads <laughs> to watch. No, you, you did start it. Yeah, yeah, I know. I started it and I lost. Yeah. So let's come right up to date. What movies are you looking forward to seeing for the rest of this year? Oh, definitely Pain and Glory by Pedro Almodovar. I know it's already out in the UK over there, yep. but we're not going to get it in the US until next month. And then I, I think that's probably going to be like New York and LA the first week, and then it will slowly roll out. So I'm not even sure when I'm going to actually get the chance to watch that one. I know next month, the Judy Garland film starring Renee Zellweger comes out. Yes, very, yeah, we get yeah. that. So, yeah. And then, of course, who's not looking forward to the new Star Wars film, the final film in this storyline? Like, I, I think that's going to, I hope that's going to be great. The footage we've seen so far, it looks very good. I, I'm intrigued on them bringing the Emperor back. I think it's going to be a real treat because there's so much unknown about it and there's so much I just want to get resolved. And please, please, please don't screw it up. Well, I've got a bit of a coup that you may not know, Hadil. Trust me, you know a lot more than I do. So in Tarrytown in early October, they've got their first horror film festival, which when you think that includes Sleepy Hollow, you'd have thought they've had it before now. But one of the delights that they've got there is a screening of the 1935 Bride of Frankenstein, 35, 36. With that screening available for the first time is the original soundtrack. Universal have got it out of the vaults. They've cleaned the whole thing up. And so that soundtrack's going to be on sale then. La 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 Records are going to be doing it, and it'll be available to the public after that. But the original soundtrack for Bride of Frankenstein. Have you had re-recordings? This is an event that's and going to be incredible. Where's that? Tarrytown in, Tarry Town in New upstate York, New York. Yeah, that's where I go. Yeah, because I've got relatives in Sleepy Hollow, so I go over there. But I'm not there this year, which is bloody typical. <laughs> So I won't be there for that festival. If you're a fan of Bride of Frankenstein, this is a big event. It was only announced yesterday. I love that movie. I own a, a DVD box set of the original Universal monster movies, and those are definitely ones I watch every Halloween. Of all of those, which is your favorite? If we go from Dracula to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Uh, definitely The Wolfman. I'm a big Lon Chaney fan. He's definitely one of my favorite actors from the era and luckily, I actually do have a couple serials within my library where he's in it, which made me extremely happy. Now, which version of Dracula did you watch? Because there were two, didn't they? They filmed in the day the English language version and, and the Spanish, Spanish version, version overnight. Yeah. The English language version is the one I have. I do want to watch the Spanish one, though. It's, it's really think, good. 
I've seen bits and pieces of it, and it, it intrigues me a lot. So I do need yeah. to get around to watch. I think the acting again. We're looking at a different generation. I don't think the acting is brilliant, but visually, the Spanish version is streets ahead of what Browning did. I think, even though they were filming it at night. Yeah, they were filming it at night, but it, it, the way he uses camera, the way he uses everything and set up, it's just much more atmospheric. That's uh, interesting. You know, I mean, That's like, very interesting. No, I'm, I'm, as a movie fan, now I'm thinking, I really want to go and have a look at yeah, the... Yeah, no, co- I, I've, got, I've, I've got a copy of it. Compare and contrast. As I said in one of our coming out shortly about foreign language films, and I say in that that my favourite horror films are Spanish horror films because they have a heart and soul that I don't think many other horror films do. I mean... I'm not a great fan of Japanese films. I hate Italian horror movies, but I love Spanish horror movies. Final question. We've kept you long enough. What are your plans for the growth of Pulp Serial? I definitely want to get my library of stuff that I have on different platforms. Uh, Like I said, right now, I just have the website, the Amazon app, and then YouTube. I definitely want to explore different avenues to get it on, expand the library, of course, more and more over time. I mean, the, the ultimate goal one day would be to hopefully somehow gain enough money in order to purchase a, a closed down movie theater and then be able to kind of share this stuff, you know, live with people at a theater that would, is what I would absolutely love to do. That's fantastic. Well, yeah. Graham's brother lives in uh, Los Angeles. When you set that up, we'll all travel over, stay there and crash in to watch this. Yep, exactly. Count us in. <laughs> Okay, I mean, just to let you know, between Santa Cruz and Los Angeles is about an eight-hour drive. <laughs> yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, oh, and, okay. and, he, and he lives in South Los Angeles. Does he? They, they love hotels and things. We can crash. <laughs> Do you think? <laughs> Maybe one or two. Maybe one or two. Yeah. Okay, but it's been a real honour to talk to you about your distribution company and movies in general. I think that's been fantastic. We'd love to talk to you again, particularly as we get near the end of the year and look at what your favourite films of the year have been. We will, of course, put details in our show notes of where to find things. But can you once again tell our listeners as they sign off where they can find your site? Of course. And again, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful talking to you all. At the time this is being released, of course, the the new version of PulpSerialFilms.com will be out. Again, you can also find me on youtube.com where i post some of the the pulp serial stuff like the movie serials uh cartoons trailers different things and then if you have an amazon fire tv or tv stick i do have the two apps that have a limited amount of stuff on them the pulp serial app and then the pulp cinema app specifically just for the the short list of feature films that i have i do it's been a real pleasure thank you very much indeed thank you very much that was great Cheers. thank you thank you for that ideal if you want to learn more about Pulp Serial, then check out the website, as Hadil said, at pulpserial.com. I think we have time for a little movie news. Let's sneak that into the show. Okay, it's time for our final movie news of the year. In December... We have a number of special shows, so we're giving Movie News a rest for that month. That gives everyone time to get their movie news suits cleaned for the new year. Why do we have to wear suits for this section? Have you forgotten this is a podcast, Jeff? It means no one sees us. I'll ignore that. (laughs) And instead, I'm going to march on and start with something. Well, it's almost an exclusive, as I happened to be there when the news broke. 
Now, a few weeks ago, I was in London for a fun concert battle between film composers David Arnold and Michael Giacchino. It was a good-natured, high-octane event. On the David Arnold side, there was music from TV Sherlock, Godzilla, and, of course, his stunning music for the wonderful Independence Day. I think that's one of your favourites, Graham, isn't it? Really? Do you just make this stuff up as you go along, Jeff? I don't like that film at all. Too silly and far from the serious science fiction I love. As opposed to Blade Runner, which had flying cars in 2019, or a sequel whose main entertainment value is to send you to sleep. (laughs) Just stick to your alien invasion movies where alien insects can travel the galaxies but have computer systems we can hack into in the 90s. You wait till we get into Area 51. The truth truth is out there. Anyway, back to the concert. And I wish I was. On the Michael Giacchino side, there was the emotionally powerful opening music from Up, the Cloverfield theme, and his music for Star Trek. However, the unexpected part of the evening came from the special guests. There was Neil Gaiman there to introduce the first public performance of David Arnold's music from the Amazon TV show Good Omens. Jurassic World director Colin Trevorrow in a humorous exchange with both composers, and then The Bombshell. Director Matt Reeves, over in the UK filming of The Batman at Leesden Studios, came on stage to ask Michael Giacchino if he would score the superhero film. He even got down on one knee to do it. (laughs) Giacchino, of course, said yes, and it was officially confirmed straight after the concert. When did we get that one, Jeff? Not until July 2021. The story's very much under wraps at the moment. They're still casting the villains. What we do know is Robert Pattinson, somewhat controversially, well, for some at least, probably Marvel fans, jealous of DC as I think about it more, (laughs) will play Batman. The villains are allegedly the Riddler and Catwoman. Don't even expect a trailer or more information on this till I would think we're approaching next summer. All I will say is, if Michael Giacchino's music is half as good as his score for Doctor Strange, yes, I know it's Marvel, (laughs) then we're in for a treat. Beat me to it. Now, after all this excitement and we've built it up, Let's go to Graham for the icing on this particular movie news cake. And that doesn't worry me in the slightest, Jeff. Let's take a look. Jeff, and I say this every month, you're a bastard. What do you mean, Graham? This is local news for local people and relates to your favourite film of last year. No, it's just a way for you to get me talking about Peter Rabbit. Jeff just Gibson off. Graham, Peter Rabbit, you know, local and, you know, for the kids. <sighs> Big kids like you. Filming has finished on what promises to be another James Corden classic. Classic. I can't believe you wrote this. Peter Rabbit 2 is coming to cinemas next Easter. What has caught people by surprise in Gloucestershire is the trailer, which is quite a bit of the county on show. Filming on the live action sequences started in January of this year over in Australia. I see that Sydney stands in for the English countryside. Then, in April of this year, Rose Byrne and Donald Gleeson were in Richmond with new cast member, the excellent David Owellio. After that, filming moved up to Ambleside in the Lake District. What we didn't know at the time was how much was then filmed in Gloucestershire. If you check out the trailer, you can see a wonderful shot of Gloucester Cathedral and the docks. Also look out for College Court and the House of the Tailor of Gloucester, based on one of Beatrix Potter's books. Finally, the trailer ends with a shot of Cooper's Hill, 
where the cheese rolling event is held annually. In fact, it looks so good, I'm going to be the first in the queue to see this next Easter, writes Jeff. I'm not going to go and see this pile of rubbish. Stop writing this nonsense. Thank goodness there is no more movie news this year. My nerves just couldn't stand it. Hopefully, Graham. Mel will be making some new films in the new year. (laughs) And on the subject of action heroes, let's go talk to Elijah about another screen classic. Listening to that thing, I think we should keep our movie suits on for this one. God, I remember the first time I saw this film many, many years ago. Before I get too nostalgic, let's go over to Elijah. That music says it all. Everybody knows it. Everybody know who it introduces. So I'm very excited this episode to be talking about the first James Bond film, Doctor No with Elijah. Yes, it's back to... Elijah revisiting the classics. Hi, Elijah. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So this is a very big project we're going to be undertaking. We're going to go through a lot of the Bonds, and obviously we'll pace those out. I understand you've not seen a lot of the early Bond films. No, I've seen bits and pieces of of them in passing. I have not watched. I've seen a few of the Pierce Brosnan films. I've seen a few. I mean, I've seen most of the Daniel Craig Bonds, but not the classics. I think it's time for you to get that chucks on, load up your water PPK, and let's start in on this. So Dr. No is almost 60 years old. Do you think it holds up? Oh, for 60 years, yeah. For the most part. It's not special effects extravaganza. No, I don't think they had a huge budget, did they? They didn't. They had a very small budget. Well, at that even for that time, for a million pounds. Yeah. And wow. this was a year you got films like Tari, the John Wayne film set in the jungle. To Kill a Mockingbird, Birdman of Alcatraz, Lawrence of Arabia, and this. Birdman of Alcatraz, what a great movie. What, oh, right, okay, sorry, I'm off on a little... Yes. I have not seen old. that one. You've oh, not seen man, it. Oh, man, that's fabulous. I think there's a future classic right there for you. Yep. It's, um, <laughs> it is stunning. But yeah. back to Dr. No. Graham, does it hold up? Oh, I loved it. I watched the restored... First, what a great print. What a fabulous. The colours really popped and the time period was really beautifully captured. I thought that, you know, from the drabness of London, yeah. the hazy, sunny Jamaica, the shots at night, the bits on the island. I thought it was all wonderful. It was fine as a Bond film. You know, the, the ending was very, very rushed, I thought. But as a general spy film from that era, I thought it was great. It romped along pretty quickly. Pacing was good. Music was fantastic, as we thought we'd all agree. No, uh, Cinema- no we don't, but we'll come on to that Cinematography was great. Yeah, I thought it was well put together. Few problems with some of the views expressed, but that's for I me didn't. for 21st century person looking back. Yeah, I thought it was great. It was yeah, great. It's a lo- lovely film to just sit and watch. And enjoy for a, and have a nostalgic trip back to the 1960s. Yeah, me too. I yeah. loved it. I haven't seen it maybe 20 years, I mm. think. I did buy a box set of all of them. And this one was scratched and just didn't play. So I've watched all the other ones about 10 years ago, but I haven't seen this for ages. Absolutely fantastic. The more you read into it around the outside of the film and the making of the film, 
you just get to realise the amount of effort they put into it. Probably appreciated it more having researched the yes. um, the stuff around the outside, some of the decisions they made and why they made it. But yeah, I just I love the film. I, I do like Bond. I didn't realise just how much I enjoyed it. I just sort of ignored it most of the time. But everybody says, "Oh, Goldfinger's the greatest," yeah. but it. I I also liked that it was the fact that it's a snapshot. This isn't the Bond that Connery's going to portray. It certainly was very different for its time. You know, he was in this tux, he was this super spy, and I really, really enjoyed it. I thought, yes, he does look sharp and it does look different from all of the sort of spy movies of people creeping around in the shadows and things. The whole thing has so much style. Yeah, very, very mm-hmm. stylish. I certainly want to pick up on style in a minute, which I think is no, it's a very fair point there, Neil. But let's talk about Jamaica for a moment and the use of the Jamaican locations. The Bond novels were extremely popular in the 50s and 60s. And the reason for that is, particularly in Britain, people didn't go abroad. They never travelled. So these were really exotic places. And one thing that Fleming could write about and capture is locations and travelogue. He wrote for newspapers for, the, for that sort of thing. So he captured that really well. So to see Jamaica on screen in the way it's vividly captured, and, and you're right, by watching it in a rescaled version, yeah. and Elijah, I assume the version you would have seen would have been rescaled as well, you got a vividness that would have been very striking back in 1962. Again, you cannot underestimate how popular these books were. I mean, Kennedy was a fan. Yeah. You know, and funny enough, it was, <laughs> he was, it was the, yeah, well, probably for many reasons, eh, Elijah? Um, uh, well, probably for three reasons in this film. <laughs> Everybody loved when the Bond film, a Bond book came out every year. They were really big. It was the book version of the MCU. That, actually, that's a fair point. But, but actually good. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've just, always, just, always liked you, Elijah. Just to give you an idea, my parents loved detective novels and can always remember a stack of Bond books on their nightstand in their bedroom. They used to read these, obviously, before they went to sleep. And, you know, they would actually talk about, oh, there's a new one coming out in paperback. Paperbacks were quite new as well. It was quite an event for a new Bond to come out and then they went and saw all the films as well so it was it was actually elijah it was a bit like the mcu you know they read the comics want to go and see the big film you know they'd read mm-hmm. the books want to go and see the film this is where the controversy came in because connery wasn't that well known an actor he was a bit player more than anything yeah. else he got this lead he's introduced in a way today that's quite striking he's smoking and yeah. again it's shown through his hands and to his face oh yeah don't want to show people smoking anymore that's just yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Big, no, no. Yeah, there is that. But how was Connery's Bond for you, Elijah? I think Connery's Bond is great. He's got a. When I watched Connery first, I think it was in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That was the first time I like recognized him. And so seeing him as a younger man is really, really interesting and weird. But I mean, he's got that presence mm. on screen that's just awesome. And he's, you know, very suave, I guess, in a very Sean Connery-esque way. Mm, that's the thing, isn't it? It's described now, that sort of suave is now as Sean Connery. Connery. And interestingly, somebody once quoted, 
if Sean Connery played him as the school bully, Roger Moore would go on and play him as the school prefect. So he has that arrogance, that violence about him. Do you, do you agree? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah definitely. But, Which is the, it's the book. It's the books. He's a killer. That's what everybody forgets about Bond. He is a government-sanctioned killer. Let's stop. That's, that's the whole double O. That's what the whole double O thing is. And twenty years time, when we get on to the <laughs> to the modern Bond films, that's the thing that Daniel Craig brought back to the part. You know, he goes out and disposes of people who are embarrassing the government or need to be disposed of. He's which a they ne- man. Which they neatly did at the beginning when yeah. they said, "Oh, this is lose your double O unless you start using the Walther PPK." Yeah. It's interesting listening to all of this and the fact that you know with Connery. He did play up this arrogance. He definitely was a killer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was no, yeah. he was nothing before, wasn't he? He was described the richest man in the poorhouse. They just looked at him and went, yes, him. And they were building a <laughs> dynasty here. This was quite a big decision. Yeah. Well, they didn't know they were going to get to number two. It, they it, thought it, they, it, that's what they were planning from the uh, beginning. Uh, that's an interesting point, Jeff. They didn't realise we're going because it's a very confident film. Oh, he's extremely confident. Really is. I'm setting this franchise up. Here's my leading man. He's tough. He's hard. Oh, here's this incredibly glamorous woman walking out of the sea. It had all of the the things that came in the later Bond films, and they were all set up in that, including the music. And the style and the way everything is set up. Yeah, definitely. But I think, again, go back to Connery, the, the thing with Bond, and Ian Fleming writes it from this perspective, he's very middle class. So Bond is very much a middle class hero. I, w- I want to come back to the style in a bit. But Connery is very working class. He has that roughness about him. So he appeals, which I don't think, I don't think Craig does. I think Craig is a, a middle class hero for a middle class audience. But I think this is a middle class hero for a working class audience. Very much like, say, Albert Finney in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. Yeah, yeah, good. That's a oh, that's a neat. So you've got segue there. Yeah, you've got that whole Britishness that's going on again. So that's very British. So Elijah, did that come across to you? And and interesting seeing it from an American perspective. The whole middle class, working class thing. Yeah, not at all. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) which is the correct answer. (laughs) But again, in my day and age, it's not. We talk about working class and middle class and all that, but we don't. Most of the time, people don't really know what that means anymore. I don't. I don't feel like the lines are very much blurred, aren't they? And we don't have an idea of royalty or nobility. It's just, and I think that's what I was trying to get to: is the fact that America's seen as very much a classless society. From what you're saying, it's not. It's very much got the same hang-ups as the UK. But back in the '60s, and certainly in the early '60s, Britain was very much hung up on class. Yeah, it, it terribly hung up on class. And, and and again, we're going to just drift back to Monty Python. That was their big struggle yeah, was with class. A- absolutely, and that comes through in all their work. But let's touch now, I've mentioned it twice. Now you see the violent inheritance system. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Help, help, I'm being repressed. Yeah, if there's a Walter PPK, that'll stop you being repressed. Um, so this whole thing is style. So Connery is very much working class. The director, Terence Young, is very much middle class. 
It's Young who designed that character. He took Connery to Savile Row to get him his suit, made him sleep in it to show that a good quality suit you can get up in the next day. And also hide the gun. Hide the gun. All of these sort of things. A lot of the food and drink. But you can actually sleep in a high-quality suit and come back up and it's not all wrinkled and crappy. That's what they say. I think you pay for it, though. I hate to think how much that would be worth today. Um, in, In a previous life, I worked in London with some of the very senior people they would have their suits made in Savile Row. And when they were going abroad to Hong Kong and places like that, they would have special suits made for them that would absorb sweat and allow them to function. And and it was like a science of suit making. Holy cow. Oh, it's just unbelievable. And in those days, I remember our agency manager who worked in Hong Kong or went out to Hong Kong regularly, he paid Eight hundred pounds for a suit. Yeah. That's ridiculous. I mean, that's yeah, several thousand, yep. several thousand now. Yeah, it's about five grand now, five six thousand for a suit. For a, for suit. a suit. Okay. Yikes. Yeah. I mean, they they discuss things like what he would look like. His cufflinks. Would he have a lighter? Would it be petrol or gas? All these things were discussed to the and finest detail. Absolutely. And that was, I, for me, especially watching the extras, they were setting this up for more than one film, whether it was two, three, five, ten, however many, and the music, obviously, and the shirts. They went to a specific shirt maker. Yeah. Just to, now, the because- shirts would have been made in German Street. Because that's where you get your shirts yes, from. Yes, yes. Uh, Turnbull and Asa. Yes, they're quite they're quite pleased with it. They designed the cuffs so you could get it on quickly and off, which is probably more important in a bond film. Fun, at least. Yeah. yeah, and they thought the of bond it. Bond and Kennedy both. Yes, yep. yes, indeed. Well, <laughs> and that brings me on to my next point, which is the other thing associated with Bond: the women. It's been accused throughout the years of a lot of sexism, and trust me, some of the films we're going to come on to when we go through the Bond films, we'll really hit upon that. Elijah, how did you think this one fared? He slept with three women. Do you think it treated them in a demeaning way? Is it a sexist film by today's standard? What did you think? I think he treated the middle woman in a demeaning way. The villainous I mean, one. He, well, yeah. I mean, she's only villainous in the sense that she works for Dr. No. She's not villainous in any other sense. At least that we see on screen that I can remember. That's right. If she um, was the one that sneaked the spider into his room, more on that later, then <laughs> she deserves everything she gets. Uh, <laughs> he first meets her. He kisses her. He grabs her. Does all that kind of stuff like that. That's I feel like that's the part of Bond that we don't like. The whole thing with the when he's gambling and then the woman ends up in his room later on. I mean, I have a problem with that morally as a religious person, but, I mean, Bond's not a religious character, so he's going to do what he does. But it would have been very different back, yeah, 50 years ago, and I think that was one of the, what was seen as one of the liberating things about it. And as somebody who's not religious, I, I have a, a moral problem with it also. But the the only thing it's tempered with is the fact that she goes to his room. So he <laughs> says, I'll, I'll, I'll see you, I'm off. She appears in his room and he says, oh, do I have enough time so he's th- weak then, is what you're saying? No, I'm just saying it was a nice juxtaposition for the those times for the woman to take the lead. She takes the lead, she entraps him. He has to sleep on the plane, I presume, flying over to Jamaica. <laughs> so, but I mean, it didn't really... I don't imagine it was much of uh, entrapment. No, 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 no. No, those, those were very light handcuffs. <laughs> 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 Made of elastic. And Ursula Andres, Neil, what are your thoughts? 
It's a 1960s thing. We have to take it from that angle, don't we? And and she is and quite villainous. Didn't she kill somebody in with a scorpion? With a scorpion, who yeah. Raked her. Who and raked let's face her. it, Harry Ber- Halle Berry did it thirty years later, didn't yeah. she? Yeah, I do like Ursula Andress. I think she's in. Yeah, quite. I a, thought she was really good. I thought she was really good. Although she did have a little touch of my pet hate which is born sexy yesterday you know she was incredibly sexy and didn't realize it no i i've come here all the time and there's a dragon and she yeah. appeared to be playing the, the classic dumb blonde which i didn't enjoy no, at no, all. no i i got very um very much nova vibes from her can you explain that planet of the apes all oh, right okay yeah she was only there for eye candy essentially she doesn't affect the plot she doesn't affect the character she just shows that she's really dumb her dad like didn't teach her anything at all the one that i did actually with in the filmmaking the miss the photographer who uh has three or four lines she was miss jamaica yeah uh, working as a flight attendant and they looked at her and went yes you'd be perfect for this and that was definitely eye candy because she they took ages over and over again she kept forgetting the lines but- and they took and she doesn't have any and that was a bit sort of stupid, wasn't it? I'm but sure there's one an of the actress most, somewhere that could have done that. She had one of the most violent scenes Yeah, when she the breaks film. the glass down Quarrel's face. Yes. She smashes a glass. Oh, was it the bulb from the bulb, our camera? from our and camera. breaks it and then straight, slices straight down, down his face. face yeah. To which he doesn't react. No, he does. He reaches up and takes the blood and looks at the blood, blood in his hand. And is it not the pain that that would cause, somebody slicing your face yeah. open? With glass. With glass, yeah. exactly. We've, we've spoken about, obviously, Bond, the sexism, and all of that. But there's an element of some set in Jamaica, and there's no racism in it. And bear in mind, this is the year that To Kill a Mockingbird comes out, and even to a certain extent, Birdman of Alcatraz. There is no reference to colour throughout. And I think in a film in that period, that interests me a great deal. The only time it goes into a, a step-and-fetch-it type routine is when Quarrel's on the island and he acts scared of the dragon, yeah. you know, when you, which painfully is some sort of machine. Yeah. But he goes into a routine that would have come out in the 1940s. Now, it struck me there's no racism in the film. And, I, again, I think that for the period is pretty good. Again, Elijah, I go to you. Did you spot that or had no thoughts on that at all? Um, I actually did. It was it was refreshing. It, everything is just treated kind of as is. Yes. But I think the way that they did that is kind of subversive. I think the equivalent of it would have been, you know, portraying a uh, a gay character back in the 90s, early 2000s without commenting on the fact that they're gay. Looking at what British society was like at that time, and there was a lot of racism, the Race Relations Act didn't come until 1973. The fact that nothing's mentioned here at all, I, I, I thought was really, really good. And there are aspects, if we go on and talk about the violence that are interesting, uh, there were a couple of censor cuts, particularly when Bond shot uh, Strangeways. And he said, oh, you've had your bullets. And he put one into him and he fell and then put another one into him on the floor. In fact, he put another two into him, but the censors made them cut that out. Wow. Yeah. So. I mean, you really have to be sure. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly. absolutely right. Yeah, you don't want to uh, mess about. But but they felt that was going too far, so they made them cut that. Shot him twice is not too far, but shot him four times is. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah. There's a huge difference between one and two. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what did the censors think of Lawrence of Arabia? 
Well, it was viewed as a big arts project. They probably they left that alone. He unloaded his entire pistol on the dude. Yeah, yeah, I know. But it's a big, prestigious film. The British censor is a very odd thing. If it looks like it's art, they will leave it alone. I mean, you could look at things like A Clockwork Orange, which has some very disturbing scenes, even to this day, completely uncut. But Hammer films, Hammer horror films at that time, loads cut out. You know, there was a script for that was written of I Am Legend by the author, Richard mm-hmm. Matheson. Hammer were all set to film it. They showed it to the censor first because why film it? And you're going to cut it out. It's going to cost them money. And the censor said, you film this, we'll ban the whole film. It was looked on as horror. We don't want to do it. But that, that was a class thing as well. Art films would only be watched by the upper class or middle class. But you can't have the working class getting all upset and emotional over something. So we'll mm-hmm. dumb it down for them and we'll yeah. cut all the horror out of it. Yeah, it's shocking. Absolutely shocking. But we've glossed over perhaps the most horrific aspect of this film so far, something that is genuinely disturbing. And that's the bit where Connery was strapped to a bed with a plate of glass over him and a tarantula walked over the top of him. (laughs) You know, that's just beyond the pale. I don't mind how many women he sleeps with. I don't mind how many bullets he puts into people on the floor. But tarantulas, no. Is that how they did the effect? They had him under glass. So he was strapped at an angle and Connery couldn't move. The whole bed was strapped down. Glass was put on top of him. If you look at the tarantula, you can see it's near but not quite on him. Yeah. So it was glass going over. The bits where it's on his skin is a stuntman. Oh, right. Who said it was the scariest stunt he ever did. (laughs) Scary. come on. The tarantula wouldn't even have bit him. (laughs) No. Bit of a wuss. Most tarantulas will just leave you alone and do nothing. Hang on, on. let's let's look at the key word of what Elijah just said there, most. (laughs) Not all, most. What what would be... depends on if you scare it. Yes, exactly. Just leave it alone like wasps. Just leave them alone, they go. You don't move, they're not aggressive. When you had tarantulas (laughs) near you, Elijah, did you just let them walk over you then? Not really, not normally. But I have friends who would like, you know, hold them, uh, lick them. Put them on each other's heads and stuff like that. No, no you just said lick. <laughs> yes. Lick. I've got in front of me some whiskey, and I'm now going to have to have a drink. Um, <laughs> now, we had video footage of some of our friends, yeah, actually licking the tarantula. And the tarantula was okay with that? Well, as long as he well, got paid. Well, you know what? I don't think... <laughs> I don't think the tarantula consented, so that's a that's a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's a violation. Yeah. It was violated. Poor tarantula. Cut one in half because it charged me. But oh, God. it charged you. Yeah, it charged me. It was in a corner. I swung at it with my machete, and I missed. I actually, well, I didn't miss where I was aiming, but I hit the wall. The spider ran at me, and I swung again and cut it in half. Right, Jeff. We're going to have to now get out an epi pen for Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> put him, yeah. I mean, put him down. The ants, the ants had eaten the corpse of the the spider by the next day, so I couldn't even get a picture. Okay, what type of ants would these be? Red fire ants, by any chance? Oh no, just regular Haitian ants. And- they weren't quite fire ants, but they were deep crimson, and I had to use a spoon to kill them because you couldn't crush them by hand. All of this comes out, Graham. Okay, <laughs> all of it. <laughs> We'll remind you, don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Right. So back to James Bond. Well, luckily I have questions and notes in front of me. (laughs) So Phoenix Leiter 
was played by Jack Lord, who, of course, went on to big fame in Hawaii 5 0. Yes. They did try and get him back for Goldfinger, at which point he demanded more money than Sean Connery. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, he also lost out on Star Trek. He was going to be Captain Kirk at one point, and he also demanded more money than they were prepared to pay. But how did Jack Lord act as Felix Leiter? I think he was fine. I mean, he's on screen for, what, 15 minutes? Hmm. Yeah, it was a bit odd, wasn't it? It's American rockets being tipped over the CIA, send down their top man, who just basically gives Bond a map at a Geiger counter, and that's his contribution to, to, the, to the effort. Well, he shows back up later in a boat. I mean, you know, he, he did a whole lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, Which, to rescue him, because he didn't want to be rescued, yeah. But that is really bizarre. You know, you've got this guy working for an international crime syndicate who's trying to destabilise a rocket the Americans are going to launch and the British step in and solve the problem. Now, in Brexit Britain, there are people who think that would be fantastic. (laughs) Uh, But I just find that interesting that the Americans would solve their own problem. Felix Leiter, in real life, would tell James Bond, you go away over there, we're going to sort this out. Yeah, I, I I don't think they really knew what to do with him. They had a character and they thought this would be a great idea, put the CIA in and everybody went, well, what's he going to do? And the CIA would have exactly said, no, this is ours, go away. I think the CIA would have just poisoned everyone and then just thrown a bunch of LSD around. And then and then uh, just thrown away the documentation. Kind of amazing that they didn't portray his character as being on LSD the entire time. I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Funny enough, one of the things where this came from is that uh, when they were sending up rockets and their early rockets, they noticed extra activity going on in Cuba. So I think that was one of the ideas where this came from. And they were monitoring in case... You know, there's extra signals going out and whether they would try and topple rockets. One thing we haven't covered, and we're talking about Dr. No, we've yet to speak about Dr. No, but then as he doesn't appear till late into the film anyway. And he's a little bit wooden. It was supposed to be Noel Coward. And he said, no, no, no. What do you think of the villain, Elijah? I mean, I thought the scene where they were in the room eating was fine. I thought he was very stagey, very wooden. I didn't really get him as a as a super evil, you know, I'm living under a volcano super villain type. It's with his performance, what I like about it, and, and it's true of all Bond villains in the books and the films, Connery as Bond is arrogant and projects arrogance, but the villains are even more arrogant. This guy can't hurt me. We'll have a laugh with him. He, he's a bit better than some of the other people, but he's no more. He's just a bumbling fool. I think he was a bumbling policeman. Yes, Everybody undervalues what Bond can do. They underestimate him. They don't get a really good villain until Blofeld in Goldfinger. He's very Ooh. three-dimensional. This guy was Not a Red Grant. Bit... Uh, Red Grant in from Russia with Love was extremely good, played by Robert Shaw. Shaw, yeah. Which we're going to talk about on our next Bond but, outing. Yeah, okay. Maybe I'll revise that when I look at it again, but certainly the one that pops to mind immediately is Goldfinger. But this Dr. No, everybody's frightened of him, but when you meet him, you think, strange Chinese guy with his hands chopped off. And talking of things that weren't actually very um, PC in Mm. those days, uh, Dr. No's character was made to look a bit Asian. He was Asian. He wasn't an Asian um, actor. actor. No. No, Joseph Wiseman wasn't. So a bit of whitewashing then. Yeah. It's, it's the, the 1960, 60. and it's, yeah. You know, he, he came and went, and I'm going to be honest, I just kind of fell 
flat. There was a whole lot more menace when he wasn't on screen than when he was. Yes, yeah. and I, and I would fully agree with that. Yeah, because everybody seemed to be scared of him. People would do anything to to not upset him. In fact, the second girl, girl who's working for Doctor No, is terrified of him. So he builds this whole persona of being very creepy, and then when you meet him, it's just a scientist. He's just a scientist. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I would have been too shocked if the guy just came up and was like a Lego character. Ooh, there's an idea. Lego Doctor No. So let's talk about one last thing before we finish. The music. Now, the music in this particular film has got into a lot of trouble. Monty Norman is the composer. However, one of Monty Norman's themes was arranged by John Barry, at that time part of the John Barry Seven. It's that famous theme and that arrangement that's become the James Bond theme that we heard at the start of the show as well. Given they overuse that theme throughout this film, and apparently it wasn't even in the main titles to start off with, they made them add that. How do you think the music works in the film? I think the music works well. I don't. I don't remember any, you know feeling like it took me out of the film. Definitely not as good as say the score in the film we talked about last time, Lion in Winter. No, it works, and it gave that that suitable spy vibe that, of course, I'm accustomed to from getting that kind of music in every spy film ever made since then. Certainly, the the hero theme. Um, I th- I think a lot of Monty Norman's score is very serviceable for that period, and I'll give you an example. We go back to that tarantula. When the tarantula's knocked off, you know, he's got this big building sort of string, ominous build-up to it. And then once he's hammering it with the shoe, you know, there's a striking chord every time the shoe Two comes hits, down. Yeah, and that was a uh, bit on the nose, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I think that's that's Mickey Mouse in, really, yeah. just fitting something in there. When we go and talk about From Russia With Love, <laughs> the, the sequel, sequel. <laughs> um, From Russia With Love, and you see then when Barry gets to do the whole score and how he works things in, it's much, much more subtle. One of the things we see in Doctor No is the build-up. You, you spoke about the franchise, and, of course, it was early days. If this hadn't been a success, it would have been the one and only. It was, but you start to see things like Moneypenny, Lois Maxwell yep. came in the yep. beginning, the banter between her and Bond, M, Bernard Lee in these early films as well, Ken Adam and his production design, and I'm particularly struck here with the scene where he picks up the tarantula, you know, with that grill overhead, which they did on a budget of about 10 quid, I think. But it's such a striking sequence. Well, when they were all in Jamaica filming all those scenes over there, the designer was over in Pinewood making the studios for Dr. No and all those areas, the rooms, etc. There's one scene where he's put into a, a, a room and there's a, a concave ceiling to it. That's sort the of one I'm the, talking about. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the bars, tarantula. isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and those and the bars you can see. Everything is clean. It's white. It's... Very sexy. very, it? very... Well, it's, it's also so minimal. Yeah. Everything was minimal. The whole setup where they're trying to divert bombs is so massive great room and very little in it i thought that was quite clever i thought the set dressing was excellent i mean it had state-of-the-art computing there were no punch cards it was all tape and that was without terence young being involved he just thought this is i think what i want from this and the design when they terence young turned up it was perfect yeah it's very clever i think the production design looks great I think all the sets, locations are, are excellent. I even think the weird tank, fire-breathing dragon thingy okay. looks good. 
I like the nuclear what a destabilization room or whatever the heck that yeah. was in the end. I was trying to think of what it was called. But... I do love seeing electronics uh, blow up into a bunch of sparks. Yeah, <laughs> that's very 60s as well, isn't it? Yeah, everything had that sort of flash paper look to it. Yeah, it was shocking. I leave the last word to you, Elijah. We've gone back almost 60 years for this one. Do you think it's dated well or badly, given that you've now seen it? Does that make you look forward to watching the next one from Russia with Love or dubious? No, I'm actually looking forward to it. Again, taking into account the period in which it's in, you know, not expecting it to have a, a subway train just, you know, blow through the floor and take out, you know, the subterranean part of London. I think it's great. I think it does exactly what it came out to do. And other than the point in the middle with him sleeping with a woman and then sending her off to get arrested, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Excellent. And on that note, Elijah, thank you very much. That's Dr. No, and we'll be back with some more Revisiting the Classics. Elijah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Elijah. Bye. I must watch that again. Still not sure about the music, though. Thanks, Elijah. And he, like James Bond, will return with another classic in the new year. So, Jeff, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. Okay, time to finish packing and get out of here before any political wannabe leader knocks on the door. So it only remains for us to say thanks thanks for for listening listening and and goodbye. goodbye. That's my case, Graham, not yours. (laughs) And that's a wrap. Make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast. Please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.